It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. According to the Identity Theft Resource Center, 47% of U.S. consumers surveyed experienced identity theft in 2021. Joining us today to talk about how you can improve your digital safety is Mark Pribish, Vice President and ID Theft Practice Leader with Merchants Information Solutions. Mark has 30 years of experience in ID theft and cybersecurity. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, and thanks for having me. So, Mark, that is an alarming statistic, 47% of Americans. Who is most at risk for identity theft? So it's really interesting. The Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, comes out with an annual report every year, and this identity theft and fraud report will identify identity theft victims by age. And depending on the demographic, uh, it's typically young adults, or the mature market, 50 and older, that are the most impacted by identity theft. You say that it's important for people to practice consumer risk management. What does that mean? and How does that apply to these two demographics that you just described? So businesses have risk managers, and they have a risk management practice. As individual consumers, we should be taking the time to educate ourselves and be up-to-date on the latest trends, identity theft trends, and scams that affect uh, us individually and our family members and our friends. The big three challenges that people have, that consumers have today, are phishing, vision, and smishing. And everyone pretty much knows what phishing is when we receive a fake email by a fraudster who's trying to have you or me give up personal information. That fraudster via email might pretend to be your or my bank. And they might be saying in an email, we've detected a regular activity with your credit card and we need to confirm that everything's okay. And it's really interesting as educated and aware with all the headline news about identity theft and data breach, At the time you and I receive a certain email or a certain voicemail or a certain text, and by the way, smishing is a text, and vision, V-I-S-H-I-N-G, is a voice, a live voice call or voicemail. But when when you and I receive from our bank or our insurance, health insurance company, Uh, an email, a text, or a voicemail, or a live phone call saying we've detected something that's not right. Typically, we think that we're smart enough to know if something is fraudulent or not. But these fraudsters are so real and so good at what they do 
we tend to give up personal information because we want to prevent that irregular activity on our credit card account from happening. I know what you mean when you say they're very good because I like to believe that I am educated in this area and I'm, and I'm a little bit, you know, a little savvy, technologically speaking, but every time I get those text messages or phone calls, I'm pretty good with the emails, but when I get the phone call, for a moment I have to stop and, and really think, is this true or not? Because it does sound so legitimate. And, and, and the FBI will tell you <clears throat> that education is the number one factor in helping mitigate you and me from becoming a, a victim of identity theft. But what fraudsters count on, for, it's really interesting. Human nature is amazing. And most people want to help others. Most people are trusting. But also, most people, depending on the situation, desperation can be a risk factor. So let's go back two years ago when COVID first hit this country. When COVID first hit this country, people were looking for testing sites. People were looking for to register for a vaccine. And desperation, the emotion of wanting to get a shot or wanting to get tested, motivated individuals to go. They were just Google free testing sites or free shot sites. And the FBI said there were 150 fake websites out there that if you Googled a website and found a particular website, now all of a sudden you're giving up your personal information, your name, address, and cell phone number to confirm your appointment. And then all of a sudden the fraudsters have your and my personal information, but there was really no location for that free shot or that free test. So it's really amazing. Uh, fraudsters depend on us to be trusting, but they also take advantage of desperation. Another example of trust is current world affairs with Ukraine. There are charities and fundraising on websites all over where people can give money to help uh, the situation in Ukraine, and yet fraudsters are setting up these websites because we want to help and we trust. So, Mark, in these different scenarios that you just described to us, how do we protect ourselves? I mean, I know when I get an email, the first thing I do is check the email address of the sender, and you can usually see that it's not legitimate from just doing that. But what things do you advise? And let's start with the general things, and then we'll move over to the fundraising-type scams. So, typically, your bank will never call you to ask you your um username and password and a very a very typical scenario is a senior seniors and elderly are targeted young adults are targeted young adults don't have life experience and seniors uh, they being older and trusting they receive a phone call and are being asked for their personal information banks and government agencies like the Social Security Administration, banks and government agencies will never contact you or me or any consumer and ask for personal information over the phone. And what, you, what someone should do is just simply hang up. And if they believe there was any legitimacy to that particular call or email or text, 
they should never respond, but they should instead search the legitimate number for that their bank and call the bank and say, I just received a phone call from you saying I have irregular activity on my credit card and you were asking me for my username and password. Was that you? And typically the answer is no. Banks, government agencies, and other legitimate organizations that consumers have a relationship with, they will not call you asking you for your personal information. Is it always a good idea for us to take advantage of whatever monitoring services a bank or credit card company may have available to us? So, you know, this is interesting. For transparency reasons, I'm in the identity theft business, and my company is in the business of offering a consumer solution to help consumers um, monitor their credit or monitor the dark web. And I have to say that the industry that I'm in is not regulated. So when identity theft companies are telling consumers to pay 10 to $20 a month for some type of a credit monitoring solution, consumers need to be aware of a couple of things. The first thing is credit monitoring cannot prevent identity theft. The second thing is credit monitoring cannot resolve uh, identity theft. Credit monitoring is simply uh, an alert that something has happened. And so a lot of times people sign up and pay for services on a monthly basis, but thinking they're taken care of. They're, they're not going to become a victim of ID theft. But instead, it creates a false sense of security. And go back to that Federal Trade Commission report that comes out each year that highlights statistics of actual consumers who become victims of identity theft and fraud. And depending on, upon the year of, of the report that it's released, and I think the reports come out for the last 20 years, depending on the year, up to 50% of all ID theft victims may not have anything to do with a financial-related event. So depending on the report, Half of ID theft victims are related to a financial event, your bank account, your checking account, your auto loan, home loan. But the other half of ID theft victims in the U.S., and these are actual victims of ID theft, are victims of ID theft that are not related to identity theft. So, for example, taxpayer ID theft and refund fraud. That sounds like a financial event, but credit bureau monitoring has nothing to do with identifying irregular activity and sending you an alert. Credit bureau monitoring has nothing to do with the IRS. And then another example is medical ID theft or credential ID theft, your driver's license, my passport. When someone takes our health care insurance information or when someone uh, steals our driver's license or passport, credit bureau monitoring has nothing to do with any of that. So For example, every January, I go on a diet. Every February, my wife says, how's that working out for me? And in my case, when I ask people, how many of you, when I speak publicly, how many of you are paying for some type of a monthly service or credit bureau monitoring? Half the people raise their hand. And when I explain to them that half the time, identity theft has nothing to do uh, with a financial event, and I ask them, how's that credit bureau monitoring working out for you? And they all laugh and have a good chuckle. But with this serious subject, credit bureau monitoring is a great resource. It's great 
to serve as an alert, but it's a false sense of security as it relates to preventing identity theft. And a lot of people think uh, the opposite. They think once they have a monitoring service, they're taken care of. But how do we go about preventing it, Mark? I mean, we hear about these big data breaches, like when a T-Mobile or a large corporation gets breached and our information is then stolen. We didn't have anything to do with that. So how do we protect ourselves? We are approaching the four-year anniversary of the Equifax data breach event. Equifax experienced a data breach event in July and August, four years ago this July. And they came out in September, six weeks later, to announce they experienced a hacking event, a breach event. And a hundred in the U.S., there's 330 million individuals, 165 million adults, and in the Equifax data breach event alone, 148 million affected individuals had their names and social security numbers stolen. So there's a very, very high chance you, me, and your listeners are one of those 148 million people where our names and social security numbers are out there forever. And then let's fast forward it to the T-Mobile breach that you just referenced. T-Mobile experienced a breach event last August. And by the way, it was their fourth breach event in the last six years. And this breach event was 100 million people. So 100 million names and social security numbers. And it's really amazing that um, you and I will experience this for life. Our information is out there for life. So how do we mitigate our exposure to identity theft when large organizations that have your and my personal information have our information that's lost or stolen? I always try to tell people to protect your personal privacy, to protect your online identity, you should minimize your activity on social media. You should, with password management, a lot of people are always interested in you know, having a password that's long and complicated. I say you should have a sentence, that, a phrase that's easy to remember. So instead of, instead of um, having a password that's hard to remember, think of a sentence. I'm from Hillsborough, New Jersey, 1959. And that's my phrase for this month, this quarter, this year. And the second advice I have is when we have usernames and passwords, we should be changing them every year. And we should have multiple passwords and usernames each year because a big part of what is being stolen and traded and sold on the dark web are your and my usernames and passwords. Mark, you've used the term before, and you just said it again, dark web. Can you explain what the dark web is? So I'm a very visual person. So I think the best way to describe the dark web is an iceberg. And so the tip of the iceberg is what I call the surface web. And the tip of the iceberg or the surface web is where you and I and most consumers go to do a Google search and a Yahoo search and a news search, and a whatever search. So that's the tip of the iceberg is the surface web. Then just below the iceberg is what we call the deep web. And the deep web typically are academic databases and medical records and legal documents and scientific research and government reports. But then 
we have what's called the dark web or the deep dark web. And the dark web are where the fraudsters are buying, selling, and trading your and my personal information. And a lot of a part of the dark, dark web deals with illegal activities and drug trafficking and uh, political protests and nation states. So if you have that visual of the tip of the iceberg, just below the iceberg, and then the deep dark web, that is essentially the dark web. And so you asked about monitoring a few minutes ago, <clears throat> credit bureau monitoring. And by the way, I encourage anyone to sign up for credit bureau monitoring if it makes them feel confident and comfortable. I know I do, and my wife does, and <clears throat> my adult children do. So as much as I said credit bureau monitoring has a false sense of security and it doesn't prevent identity theft, it's still a tool and resource to have because the purpose is to send you and me alerts that something has changed, something is happening. And so now it's up to us to confirm what that alert was and was that me opening up that credit card or was that me changing my home address. Well, dark web monitoring is another form of monitoring and another proactive way of mitigating your and my risk of identity theft. Dark web monitoring is a way to monitor if your and my name or home address or driver's license number, our phone numbers, because our cell phone numbers, which are traded and sold on the dark web, our cell phone numbers are what I call the next or the new social security number. It's the new identifier. You had mentioned before with our social security number, and now it's even more heightened, the threats with the cell phone numbers, as you just explained. When our social security number or our cell phone number ends up on the dark web, and and you said it probably will happen to most of us and it's forever, what do we do then? So there's very little any of us can do related to information that's been lost or stolen. You know, in the old days, you would see commercials on identity theft service provider commercials about a hacker going after your or my personal information or a hacker going into the garbage can to find that mail that we tore up. That is the way it used to be. But hackers and fraudsters learned very quickly that going after your and my information is, uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's a lot easier to go after databases of information. So think of every organization that you and I and your listeners have ever been a part of. Think of every job we've ever worked at. Every job we've ever worked at, most of us have had health insurance. In order to have health insurance, you have to give up the Social Security number of you, your spouse, your children. And so every relationship we've had, uh, for all of us who bought a car and financed that car, we gave up our Social Security number at an auto dealership. We've had health insurance. We've had to give up our Social Security number. <clears throat> We've had apply for a job. We've had to give up our Social Security number because typically at a job, there's a pre-employment search of our credit or our criminal record. Uh, think of every doctor, every dentist. I can go on and on. But think of every relationship we've had where we've given up our personal information. So what can we do about it? There's very little 
we can do about where our information is or if our information has been stolen because of a breach event. But what we can do to mitigate our exposure to identity theft is to limit how often, and I said this earlier, how often we are on social media, how often, in fact, here's a question I ask a lot of people. Every app that we have on our smartphone has permissions, and we had to give permissions and agree to those permissions in order to get that app. Most of the time, we are agreeing to permissions that we have no knowledge of. And most of the apps we have track our information, they track our purchases, they track our searches, they even track where we are, geo-tracking, and there's Wi-Fi tracking. And even the use of our cell phone, smartphone, has a microphone, and there's eavesdropping. Marketers do a lot of different things with great intention, but yet the information they're collecting and selling to third parties all put us at risk. So we need to manage and mitigate how often we're using apps, and we need to read the terms and conditions of those apps. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. As I said in the beginning, we put so much emphasis on maintaining our emotional and physical health, but it really is time that we start to pay more attention to our digital health. So you gave us a wealth of information today, and I look forward to having you come back on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.